0: We have, um, we have been blessed, <clears throat> again I would say, by uh, the word of God and to be under the teaching of Paul, the apostle. I, uh, I would encourage you as we go through uh, this, <clears throat> this last part of the book of First Thessalonians to remember, remember that what Paul is teaching in Philippians and Colossians and Ephesians and Corinth and, and Thessalonica is also applicable for you. Because what God has preserved in the word for Christians of all ages to know that that which Christ has promised is being fulfilled in you. And so as we listen to uh, Hazel read those words, the focus of hope is the theme, the theme that uh, we're going to get into. But hope in light of the second coming, and so we've talked about that last week, the, the comforting insights about the rapture and the second coming, and then the disturbing insights about the coming and the rapture. And if you didn't keep that in mind as hearing Paul really working on developing your hope, you would read this passage uh, poorly. Because this passage would be seen as a series of just practices that uh, or actions that you should do, and I think that you would really miss out on the, some of the underlying themes that Paul wants to get to. And so I've called this um, I've called this sermon this morning the hopeful temperament of the <clears throat> sons of light, and so. As you get into this, uh, you'll hear the contrast, but more than just the contrast with the, uh, the unbeliever. I want you, believer, to hear that God is calling you and pulling you and developing you in a way that there's something s- so significant here for us that you walk away today saying, Lord, do that to me. Do that to me. I begin with a guy named John Dunn. Uh, who <clears throat> was a man who was in tension between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, and he had lots of confusion. And so he's got an interesting story. You may know him by the uh, by the phrases, for whom the bell tolls, or no man is an island. He was a uh, a poet, a scholar, a soldier. He was quite an unusual man, but he was a man that was afflicted in many ways, as a young man with temptations and worldliness and confusion but he didn't make sense of this bible and the message until he got um more mature and he was sponsoring and supporting the catholic church in england and the king really favored that so there was a it's an interesting dynamic going on there but He came to the point of when he read the scriptures, when he understood the eschatology, the end times, he understood it in a way that said, well, if this coming of Christ is any time now, what if today, if the present were the world's last night? This is the last day on earth for you. Tonight's the last night on earth for you. And that's the phrase, that C.S. Lewis picked up on when he wrote his book called The World's Last Night, originally titled The Christian Hope and Its Meaning for Today. So C.S. Lewis picked up on this theme about the eschatology. And and one of the things that Lewis concluded was that if we are Christians, we are to live as though today is our last day, but with a view in light of the hope that's coming, that's ours, that, that... that, that hope is a reality that really drives us to live each day as though it were your last day. And as you think about Lewis thinking about the end times, and, and what you get into in this passage is different than what a lot of people go to when they start talking about the end times. So let me direct us back to the scriptures and see what Paul is saying. Paul was saying to the believers, I don't want you to be ignorant. In chapter four, he says, what I'm really after is that your love for God would be a pleasing lifestyle and that everything that Paul is talking about in chapters four and five has this grand theme that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. That's what he's going for. But he didn't want you to be ignorant of the will of God. He didn't want you to be ignorant what happens when people die. Paul wanted to know that we are not like people who, when we lose our loved ones, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. And Paul will go on to say, as we mentioned last time, that that hope for us as sons of light, sons and daughters of light, are wrapped up in that metaphor of the wedding ceremony that the Jewish marriage ceremony that two-stage marriage the betrothal of the young Mary and Joseph and that that was a legitimate legal standing in the eyes of the community even though they weren't living together she would go back home and he would go prepare a place and then the second coming was him coming for his bride to bring them back and to consummate the marriage that the two would become one, and that was the wedding feast at Cana. This two-stage theory of the end times, Jesus is coming for his bride, is what we looked at last week. And so the second part of that is the disturbing thing is Jesus was not only going to come as a, as, a, as a bridegroom, but he's going to come as king and lord, and that would bring about the destruction of all the world, the, cat- the cosmological... Um, attack on those enemies of God and so you're going to be find find yourself in the end times either in a wedding or in a war and I mentioned this last week but briefly I just wanted to point out something that when Paul talks about the apocalypse or the end times he's talking about heaven breaking in and interfering in the present time bringing the future in right now so that you get a taste of glory you get a taste of forgiveness. You get a taste of the love of God. You, you are accepted in the beloved. And all that integration of heaven on earth, and we pray, thy kingdom come now. So it's living in the present hope. And that changes our temperament. It changes our disposition, our orientation to how we live in a fallen world. But in this book, he talks about the rapture, Christ is coming. He talks about the second coming. He talks about the day of the Lord. Paul doesn't go into pre-trib, post-trib, out-trib, uh, tribulation. And he doesn't go into the millennium here. And there's a reason for that. It's not his focus. He's not focused on doctrine here. He gets in that elsewhere. But what he wanted them to say... What he wanted to say to the believers is that we all have been united in a, with him in a death like his. And we will certainly also be united in a resurrection like his. We're one in Christ. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves to sin Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. The breaking in of heaven says this, hell no, the things that's destroying your soul, hell no, I'm going to judge that which is taking you away from me. And God comes in and says, I'm going to kill the sin. I'm going to destroy that flesh that's keeping you out of this relationship with me. And I'm going to say hell no, and I'm going to say heaven yes. Yes, I want that heaven. It's that glory, it's that hope of being restored, that being relieved, being released, that Christ comes to say, you are mine. You are mine. And I'm going to go after anything and everything that takes you away from me. This is the Lord of glory. And so if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, then he cannot die again, so death no longer has a mastery. Sin is conquered, death is conquered, and the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives and the life that you live, we live, he lives to God. In the same way, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God In Christ Jesus for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace now keep this in mind because when heaven comes down and grace is unloaded for you it means that every day since you have been a Christian and accepted Christ as your savior grace is covering you every step of the way Grace is going to be there until you are called home. But that grace, that is the freedom that Christ says there's hope for you. No matter matter what you go through, the grace is poured out. And therefore, we know that living in a fallen world with grace brings hope. And therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know that. But for those who are not in Christ Jesus, they have no grace. They have no hope. They have no future. They have what they have. And therefore, if you Christians start talking about hope and life in Christ, there are people who say, uh-huh, right, uh-huh, sure. There are cynics. There are uh, there are people who are skeptical, and so they would say, you're talking about this Jesus coming, sure. Mm-hmm. Now, how long ago did he make that promise? And so a lot of people are saying, well, if this is coming, why is he taking so long? I mean, he's not seeming to really be all that concerned about fixing the world, and I don't get it, and they don't get it. Well, in the New Testament, you'll have people like Paul and Peter and John and others. Peter got it. And what I want you to hear is Peter gets this idea of the, the end times breaking in, but he says it's shaping his way of thinking. So Peter would say, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written... Both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they will say, I stole this from Peter, Where, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since the ancestors died, everything goes on as this it has since the beginning of creation. Well, you can understand the cynic, the skeptic there. But they deliberately, intentionally, on purpose forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came, down, came into being and by the earth was formed out of the water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was def, uh, deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and the earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment, the day of destruction of the ungodly. This is the day of the Lord we talked about last week. But do not forget this one thing. Dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. Get this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. But instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But, but, but... The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. And the elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Peter says when the Lord comes as a warrior king, this is what's going to happen at the end. But, but you understand that you are in the last days. And the last days, according to Paul, well, what, what marks the last days? How do we know? Is, is it the, uh, the um, late great planet Earth dispensational time? Not for Paul, because Tim LaHaye didn't write his book back then. But here's what Paul, Paul says. In, um, in 2 Timothy 3, mark this. Underline it. Put it in bold. There will be terrible times in the last days. Now, this is from the time of Paul. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to the parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. This is the sons of darkness. These are those that don't have Christ, don't have grace, don't have light, don't have hope. Have nothing to do with such people. They are not a part of the family of God. Have nothing to do with evildoers and imposters. Because they're going to go from bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, depraved and disqualified. Now that's what Paul is setting up as a contrast. And you work with people like this. There are people in your neighborhood. We were like this before before Christ came into us. So, So there's an understanding that we understand sin. We understand the fall. We understand if Christ weren't gracious to us, we would be in the same boat. And therefore, how do you get out of that? But in Christ, there's no condemnation. Well, if you live in this day and age, you may understand that we have our own freedoms. This is what the polite fictions are. You don't talk to people about what they do because it's not polite. But Paul would say, if you are free in Christ, you're free not just to be free. There's a purpose for that freedom. The purpose is that you love and serve one another. So, As I go into this topic today, I want you to focus on the light. Sons of light have the grace in a fallen world for sons of darkness have no hope. And therefore you are called to be a witness to the light. And this is the thing that is the disposition, the orientation, the motivation, that which drives the believer who is walking in the Holy Spirit. Now notice what Paul does here. He doesn't go into that, well, why is Jesus taking so long? He gives the answer, as C.S. Lewis said in The World's Last Night, God is very patient, waiting that you would join him. And so he's giving people ample time to understand and meet Christians who will explain the hope that's theirs. But he says this, to, to the sons of light, if you have this good news of Christ, there's something that's going to be a reality for you. The experience for you should include these things. One, that you appreciate the leaders and the laborers among you. As Paul would say uh, in First Thess 5, he says, uh, we don't want you to be uninformed. Oh, sorry, that's four. Uh, we request of you brethren and cisterns, or sisters, brothers and sisters, that you appreciate and diligently, uh, those who diligently labor among you. And they have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Now he's saying this after he's talking about the rapture and the second coming. Notice he's not talking about doctrine. He's not talking about theory. He's not talking about uh, the 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 thing that really he's focusing on is how do you bring this hope into practice in the body of Christ and the first thing he says is, I want you to appreciate those who labor and lead you. This is the part of the deacons, the deaconesses the servants those who are who are working in the body to lead you and guide you, but notice a couple things. He says, I want you to appreciate them and esteem the work that they do. Don't esteem the position. Don't esteem the title. Esteem the work. That there's something about what leaders are to do to function in the church, and you are to esteem and value and respect the work not the position, not the, t- not the title. Appreciate the work. And that's what he's trying to get at. Understand that when Christ is trying to change and transform people into hope, that's the work of the leader. That's the work of the pastor. That's the work of, of the one who's laboring so that people develop hope. That's what he's saying. And you esteem that, that those who are trying to instruct you. But then he goes on to say, notice this. Verse 12 uh, Verse 12, the second part. Live in peace. That's the work. Are you at peace with your relationships? Is there any relationship that you have right now that's in tension or in conflict because of sin, pride, conflict? You're called to be. Peacemakers. And that's part of that hope. That's the temperament, our disposition. We are called to be peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, said Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. But he says, I want you to be uh, not only appreciate the work, but appreciate the fact that they're trying to make you a peacemaker. And that's the work that you are to esteem. He says, I want you to continue. Now notice verse. Now uh, 13 or 14. Now, now pay attention to this. We urge you, brethren. This is the instruction that Paul is giving to the Thessalonian body. We urge you, admonish the unruly. Now, wait a minute. That's the pastor's job. That's the deacon's job. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Get it? what it says. You, each one of you, are to admonish. You have the responsibility. You, brethren and sisters, we urge you all, if you're in the South, to admonish the unruly. In other words, if you are going to be a vessel of hope, your hope is going to spill out to every relationship you've got. And part of that means that you have the responsibility to admonish. Well, now that's a funny word. Here's the word. Can you read that? Nutheto. To admonish is, is a, we don't use that in English. But it means several things. To exhort, to counsel, to preach, to reason, to warn, to persuade, to to be cautious. But you're going to help remind people and put their mind in the right place. They have a responsibility. They have a thinking that's maybe off because they've come out of the sons of darkness. But here they come into the church. We want to help them get in order. This is going to come back up in a minute but he says I want you to be reasonable and think through the unruliness that you're by which you are living and so this idea of admonishing is not just for leaders and laborers it's for the whole church to say you don't want to do that have you thought about where you're going do you know what you're doing do you know what God says about that This admonition is not for, it's for you. It's for all of us to do. Why? Because we're kingdom people. And he says, we want to admonish admonish the unruly. Now this is a tricky word too. Unruly has several different translations because it's complex. It means those who are not disciplined, those who are lazy, those who are irresponsible, those who are who are out of line, out of step. It's a soldier that says, I'm going AWOL. It's those who are not responding to the teaching or the instruction of the, of the leaders and the laborers among them. It's somebody says, nope, I want to do it my way. And so there's an independent spirit to this unruly person. It's somebody who comes to the church who says, I don't need to really do much. I'll let Joe do it. I'll let everybody do it. If this if We're going to have a potluck dinner and we're going to have a grace. This, this is a nice free meal. I can get a lot of benefits by going to the church. And Paul says, no, no, no. If you're going to be in the church and participate in this hope that's coming, then you have responsibilities. Get a job. Work. Don't be a mooch. Mooching off the church, don't be a leech, don't just try to be a parasite. He says, you do your work and quietly live your life. Be responsible because God is changing you from a self-centered person to an other-centered person. That's what this unruly thing, and you've you've gotta understand that to admonish somebody who doesn't wanna be admonished is gonna be kind of tension-filled, that people don't wanna learn. Do you like people to correct you? Do you like people? Are you good at receiving criticism? We're we're not we're not good at that, because we don't do it gently or graciously, with hope. But he says, "Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted." Well, I I don't know. Just, this is the E or some some system. I I, no, no, I can't do that. It's not for me. Not, no no. The weak-hearted need to be strong, but you have to have somebody in give courage. You don't want to go there. This is where you really want to go because this is where life is. And so Paul says, help the weak. If you're going to labor and instruct and be involved with people in the ministry, help the weak. Serve those who really are not strong. Be patient with everyone. Long-suffering is what Paul would say in Corinthians. But if they do something wrong, don't try to get even. Don't try to replicate and say, well, you did this. That gives me reason to do this. Don't replicate or reciprocate what they do. Your orientation is not based on what you see. It's based on who you see. And that's the hope coming down when you address people who aren't put together. Notice this is the end time teaching. This isn't what I heard. When I read this, I thought, Paul's got a different focus here. And so notice that when Paul would say, uh, there's a second group here, is that I want you to rejoice in the Lord. As sons of light, given this reality that there's tension in a fallen world, given this reality that there's grace for the fallen world, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Pray without ceasing. Because if you're involved in this transformation of people who are hopeless to hope, it's not going to be comfortable. For if you come from a background that you are not a loved individual, your mom and dad might have not been there for you. You don't know what kindness is. You don't know what healthy relationships are. And you come into the church, and you find people that are, kind of growing and healthy, the unbeliever who comes into Christ has a lot of work to do. And therefore, for us, we have to be empathetic, compassionate, and pray without ceasing, thanking God for every opportunity to show the grace, because this is the will of God. We don't want to quench the Holy Spirit working in anybody's life We don't want to quench the spirit of anybody. We're not quenchers. We want to be people who are encouraging and lift people up. Therefore, when the spirit of God moves, be open, be sensitive. Don't despise what God is doing. Don't despise the utterances here, Paul says. But when God gives that teaching and God gives correction, don't resist. Don't fight the instruction. Don't fight the input. Don't fight the laborers and the leaders that are trying to help you grow. And last, as you look at everything, you want to examine it and carefully sift through what is good, what is excellent, what is pure, what is praiseworthy. And you hold on to those things and you get rid of those things that are evil, that are destroying you. Now, this is what Paul is saying. On one group, to appreciate the laborers and leaders and peacemaking, that that first section, notice that this is a group of people who are developing hope. These are the sons of darkness coming into the community of the sons of light. And this group of people don't have an orientation to heaven. They don't have an understanding of a hope. They don't understand grace. They don't understand a whole lot of things, and they're going to create tension in the body. Therefore, it's Our privilege to admonish, encourage, teach, and help people grow in developing that hope. The second group of people who understand that we need help in changing, and therefore we understand grace, but we haven't got it figured out. We we're not put together but we're pursuing. And so we're moving this way, and we're not worried about what's behind us. We're moving what heaven is calling us to. And therefore, one has to develop a vision, and the other has a vision. Do you have a vision for your friends? Do you have a vision for your family? This is what the word nutheto, nutheto means. You're going to direct people to the hope that's ours in Christ. And therefore, living in light of this hope of his second coming isn't a doctrinal issue. It's purely relational. Isn't that interesting? That in the church, if the Holy Spirit is at work developing your hope, it's going to be reflected in the quality of your friendships and how you relate and openly reciprocate, mutually learning from each other. This is the teaching of Paul about the end times. I never heard that before. I thought it was about the second coming and pre The focus of Paul is discipleship, counseling, maturing people in Christ. And therefore, the, wor- the world might stop at any time But even if it stops, and this is our last day, it doesn't make a difference. Our job is to be faithful to the end. Today I walk in grace. Today I walk by the Spirit. There may be sons of darkness who hear the message that you have, and they become sons of light. And therefore, when you bring them in, you embrace them. You accept them. You walk with them in their development of hope. These instructions are given in light. In in light of Paul's overall theme, to walk and please God. That's his instruction. And he affirms and he draws believers to embody the kingdom hope while living in a world that's hopeless. They don't have hope, despairing and downcast, like sheep without a shepherd. But for us, we understand that this hope brings empathy, brings that comfort, brings that support, brings that maturity. And therefore, I would say Lewis, uh, what Lewis said about this end times is what death, what death happens at the end of our life that we lose our friends, that what death happens to the individual, the second coming is going to do to the whole of humanity. In light of that, we are a seed of the kingdom and we're multiplying 30, 60, 100 fold. We are... We are people of grace. In that, in that sense, then we move back to understanding what John Donne was saying. What if this present night were the world's last night? John Donne, as a young man, if you took him as a son of darkness, understood, understand that he grew and grew and grew and became the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. When you look at people, have a vision for them because what you see is not what you is all that's there. God is still at work. There's hope for those who are not put together yet, and therefore, I would change C.S. Lewis's theme: not live each day as though you were your first day in heaven, uh, not the last day on earth. It's you live from that orientation of hope that that's how you live your life how Christ talks about us, how Christ thinks about us. As sons of light and sons of darkness, he's waiting for all to come to him. In repentance and in faith, that's the good news. Well, we're going to stop here with the, with the last, we're going to stop with the book of, of Thessalonians. I'm going to move on next week. But I want to conclude with what Paul said. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved, complete without blame at the coming of our Lord, Jesus Christ. 24. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss, and I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all brethren. The grace, the grace every day be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray. Father, would you open our eyes that that hope of Christ in us, that glorious grace, would be uh, more experienced as our hopeful reality. Lord, take these words and, and uh, I pray that you would multiply them, take them deep and have them uh, go into our hearts and make that change that we would want to pursue that hope of heaven. So, Father, thank you for this, this word. So we give you our hearts and have you work in them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand for our closing praise.